You can open your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 6. We're in a series of messages through the letter of Paul to the Romans, and we find ourselves in the first part of chapter 6 this morning. Back in chapter 5, Paul taught us that peace with God, that is a continuing relationship of grace now and of glory in the world to come, that is the first privilege of the believer in Christ. And Romans 6 teaches that union with Christ, that is to say a state which leads to holiness, is the second privilege to come and enjoy as a believer. And the great theme of Romans 6, and particularly verses 1 through 11 in particular, is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not only historical facts and significant doctrines, but they are equally personal experiences of the Christian believer. Let me say that again. They are equally personal experiences of the Christian believer. They are events in which we ourselves have come to share in. All Christians have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And further, if this is true, if we have died with Christ and risen with Christ, then it is inconceivable that we should go on living in sin. Romans 6 consists of two parallel sections, verses 1 through 13 and verses 14 through 23. And each of these two sections elaborates the same general theme, that is, sin is inadmissible in a Christian. But the argument used in these two parts is slightly different. In verses 1 through 13, it is our union with Christ which is unfolded. And in verses 14 through 23, it is our slavery to God. This is our position as Christians. We are one with Christ, we are united to Him, and therefore we are slaves of God. And the argument for holiness is grounded upon this double fact. I'd like us to notice three things this morning in connection to this. Number one, Paul's outrage with sin. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, Paul's call for the Romans to remember their union with Christ. Paul's call to remember our union with Christ. And then thirdly, in verses 11 through 13, we have Paul's call to a reckoning and repentance. A reckoning and repentance. So, with that outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to hear Jesus and him alone. And so work in our hearts and lives through your word for your good pleasure. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to notice, first of all, Paul's outrage with sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul begins the chapter with an objection to his teaching in the form of a question. Apparently, some Jews took exception to what Paul said 
concerning the purpose of the law of God in chapter 5, verse 20. You remember that chapter. Paul said the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You always can take a few words of Scripture and twist them and distort them to come up with something that isn't being said. And that's essentially what happened here. Some took Paul's teaching and turned it into a distortion of the truth. That God's righteous law actually promotes sin instead of serving to restrain it. And that's not simply a distortion of truth. It is a living reality in many people's lives. And sadly, in those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. You see, their grace as a license to sin. Jude called people like this ungodly people who turned the grace of God into a license to sin. Now we know from Paul's argument in chapter 5 that God's law does not encourage us to sin, but it does expose and give greater definition to our sins against God. And also that the number and nature of our sins could never outweigh or outrun the tremendous grace of God's forgiveness of our sins to all who execute faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Paul doesn't necessarily disagree with the doctrine, but he disagrees with the deduction made from it. It's an erroneous deduction. And so he doesn't deny the doctrine, but he takes exception to what they said. The Christian life begins with a death to sin. So we cannot go on living in what we have died to. You notice verse 2. His outrage is expressed. May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? And you know, anyone who has tasted Christ, who has experienced the true cleansing of sin, and has a fresh, clean conscience inside of their life, they can't go on sinning. In fact, they will experience an outrage with sin. And I think part of the difficulties nowadays is that even in the evangelical church, we get too comfortable with our sin. I think of the words of the writer of Hebrews, the deceitfulness of sin. We allow something to go on and on and instead of being quickened to a hatred to it. When I read Paul's words, I'm convicted that my outrage against my own sin is not like his. And I want to be outraged over sin. I want my senses to be quickened. Because I know I can look back and I know I can remember when Christ invaded my life. And perhaps you remember the same. When you were made aware of your sin and the fact that Jesus Christ laid down his perfect blood for you. If you really, truly believe that, it will lead to an outrage against sin. God forbid that we become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that we let sin go on in our lives and participate in it, continuous sin, repetitive, habitual sin, and we don't deal with it. No, Paul's outrage should be our outrage. We should be awakened by the Spirit of God. There's an area of our lives where we know change is necessary. Well, how do we bring that about? I'm sure there are many conscientious Christians that don't want to live in sin. They want to do and deal with their own sin 
as God would command of them. Well, Paul is sympathetic to that. The Word of God is sympathetic to that. And so first, he says, he reminds us of our call to remember our union with Christ. How are we going to have holiness? How are we going to be made to hate our sin, to be outraged by it? Well, we have to remember our union with Christ. And you'll notice uh, several things in connection to this. First of all, our baptism signifies our union with Christ. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? A Christian is not merely a justified believer. He or she is someone who has entered into a vital, personal union with Jesus Christ. We are justified in Christ. And there's no possibility of justification through Christ without union with Christ. The former depends on the latter. And so baptism signifies not merely the washing away of sin, which it does, and not merely the coming of the Holy Spirit, which it does, but also our union with Christ. You know, God has always wanted that, an intimate, personal union. Part of the distinctive nature of Christianity is that it stresses an intimate relationship with the living God. Not a code of behavior for some God who is far away and remote, but a God who can be known, a God who can enter into your life and bring about change. That's the God of Christianity. We read about it in Exodus 19, 1 through 6. You'll notice the intimate, personal union with the Lord has always been God's design. He says, my possession Other translations render it my treasured possession. You will be my treasured possession. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Lord God Almighty has this exalted status for his people. And a part of that exalted status is a rich, vital relationship with him. A union with him. We see it in John 17, the high priestly prayer. Did you notice the first two verses? Jesus says, The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Be part of experiencing the true love of God. It's built upon your union with Christ. Now be careful here. Paul is not saying that the ordinance or the sacrament of baptism saves. He spent three chapters arguing that justification is by faith alone. No, when he writes, all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, he means that this union with Christ, invisibly effected by faith, is visibly signified and sealed by baptism. So in summary... Being a Christian involves a personal, vital identification with Jesus Christ. And this union with him is displayed in our baptism. Now, if you're like me, maybe you grew up in the church and you heard these things all your life. I remember hearing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so forever. In my Sunday school class in Orlando, Florida. But it wasn't until I was 18 years old. That for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, it's as if a voice came. Something I had heard all my life, but all of a sudden it was personalized. 
It wasn't just Jesus Christ died for sinners anymore. It was personal. It was intimate. And in my heart, I realized Jesus Christ died for me. He died in my place. He died as my sin-bearing substitute. That God loved me so much that he would send his only begotten son and sacrifice him on a Roman cross to satisfy his just demands and to clothe me and cover me in righteousness. And not only that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we become the righteousness of God in him. That's an exalted status. You talk about something that will give you a sense of well-being, a sense of understanding who you truly are, and a reason why God says, I want you to know the treasured possession that you are as you stand before this God. Being a Christian involves a personal, vital union a relationship with Jesus. And this union with him is displayed in our baptism. Now he goes on to say we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Look at verses 4 and 5. Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so also Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father. We might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. You know, these verses could serve many purposes. They can certainly allude uh, to a pictorial symbolism of baptism. You can just picture uh, John the Baptist or Jesus uh, baptizing in the Jordan River. You know, out there, open air, and going down into the water, getting sprinkled, getting immersed, probably both. I think we would have seen a variety of baptisms in the New Testament period. But we need to remember that Paul's overarching theme here in these verses, namely, is our living and vital union with Christ. And the significance is that as our baptism pictures it, we are united to Christ in very specific and particular ways, in his death and resurrection. We are not to think of ourselves as just united to Christ in some vague and general sense. We must be more particular than that. And we have identified and become one with Christ who died and rose again. And so we are united to Christ in that specific terminology, according to his death and his resurrection. And then Paul goes on in verses 6 through 10, Christ's death was a death to sin, and his resurrection was a resurrection to God. Look at verses 6 through 10 with me. Christ bore not only our sin and guilt, he bore our flesh and our old nature when he died on the cross. That's extremely important. That does not mean that we become insensitive or unresponsive to sin. When the Bible talks about being dead to sin, it doesn't mean that we think of it in that terms, as a corpse is insensitive to physical stimuli. You have to be careful with analogies like that in the Bible. When Jesus says become like little children, it points to a humble dependence. It doesn't point to other things that little children do, like ignorance and waywardness and stubbornness. In the same way, when Paul speaks of a death to sin, it's best to look for a biblical definition rather than simply an analogy from a corpse. The death in the Bible points more often to spiritual death rather than physical death. And death and sin are linked to the penalty for sin. And Christ's death to sin was a full payment of the penalty of sin. 
And the law no longer has a claim on him. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he satisfied the just demands of Almighty God. And so sin is not extinct, it's just defeated. It's not annihilated, but it's just deprived of its power. When Paul speaks of the old self or the old man, Paul is referring to the former self prior to conversion. Part of the confusion here for Christians is associated with the terminology in connection with this. You know, Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, Romans 6, Paul is talking about something here that has happened to us. And in Galatians 5, he describes something we do to ourselves. I'm crucified with Christ, but I also take up my cross daily in self-crucifixion. There are, in fact, two separate and distinct ways that the New Testament speaks of a Christian spiritual death in connection to holiness. The first is a death to sin, and the second is a death to self. Our death to sin is through identification with Christ. Our death to self is through imitation of Christ. First, we've been crucified with Christ. That is, we identify with Christ in his death, and therefore we repudiate the flesh with its passions and desires. Secondly, we take up our cross daily and follow Christ, as Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. The first is a legal death, a death to the penalty of sin. The second is a moral death, a death to the power of sin. The first belongs to the past and is unique and unrepeatable. I died in Christ to sin once. The second belongs to the present and is continuous and repeatable. I die like Christ to self daily. Extremely important and somewhat complex that we die to sin. When I look at the Lord Jesus, he died for me. And when I think about myself in union with him, I realize that he died with my flesh. He bore the penalty of my sins. All my sins are paid for now. And I can't go back to living the way that I used to do, or used to be. And that's why Paul, thirdly here, says he calls for a reckoning and repentance. What should we do in light of this information, in light of our union with Christ, in light of outrage against sin? Look at verse 11. Verses 11 through 13 are very practical. Even so, reckon yourselves, or consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If Christ's resurrection was a resurrection to God, which it was, and if we have been united in Christ to his death and resurrection, which we have, then we ourselves have died to sin and risen to God, and we must reckon it so. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, that is, through our union with Christ Jesus. Now, reckoning is not make-believe. We're not to pretend that our old nature has died when we know perfectly well it hasn't. You can pretend all you want to, but you know the power of sin in your life. This is why this sort of behavior demands faith. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, I see myself identified in union with Christ. I'm really there. And by faith, I live as if I have been set free from my sins. 
Faith is looking unto Jesus. It's really hard to define faith. But the writer says it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And you can go through your life, looking at your life as it is in this life only, without the eyes of faith seeing the reality of who you truly are. It's not make-believe. It's not like a video game. We're to realize that our old self, that is our former self, died, thus paying the penalty of our sins and putting an end to its career. And so Paul says, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves, regard yourselves as being, in fact, what you are, dead to sin and alive to God. And our realization that our old life has ended, that the score is settled, that our debt is paid, that the law is satisfied, that should lead us to have nothing more to do with the old man. And look at it this way. Our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old self, of me before conversion to Christ. Volume two is the story of the new man, the new self, or of me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume one of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I did die. How? I received my just deserts in my substitute, Jesus Christ, whom I have become one with. And so volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection to life. My old life having finished, a new life to God has begun. And Paul is saying we are simply called to reckon this, not to pretend it, but to realize it, that it is a fact. And we lay hold on it. We have to let our minds play on these truths. We have to meditate upon them until we grasp their power and their significance. Is there a change in your life? Have you reckoned yourself dead? You know, there are a lot of things, perhaps, that we have in our old man, our old past, that we don't like. Talk to Daryl about Orlando, my hometown. Frankly, I don't like to go back to Orlando very much. Got a lot of bad memories there. Until I was 18, a lot of sin, a lot of rebellion. And so when I do go back, it reminds me of a man I used to be. But I know that I'm not that man anymore. And I have to reckon that so every day. I used to have to reckon it so to go visit my parents. Because those thoughts and those feelings and those memories come back. I remember being in Deland back in the 90s, and a fellow drove by and came inside of my office and said, I don't believe it. I said, what? He said, you're a pastor. Then he identified himself. I couldn't remember him. His name was Richard. And he went on to rehearse all the memories of all the things that I used to do and be involved in. And I said to him, that man is dead. He's dead. And his resurrection is neither desired nor planned. I'm moving forward. And I am a follower of Christ now. And I keep my mind focused on that. I keep looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. And I keep rehearsing the gospel to myself every day, as Paul did in Colossians chapter 2, where he speaks of our circumcision in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
2 Corinthians 4, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in my mortal flesh. This is a part of the union with Christ. It's a part of walking by faith. It sees things that you cannot see with the visible eye. And it reckons realities that are true even though there's not physical evidence that we can point to. Why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is the faith of the Christian. I am unified with Christ, and nothing can separate me from his love. And he has given me purpose and significance in life. I know who I am now. I have an identity that is rooted in him and no longer in myself. And I will reckon my reality and my life according to this truth. There's reckoning and that leads to repentance. Look at verses 12 and 13. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. That you go on banging its lusts. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Paul says in verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. That is, don't let sin be your king. Christ is now your king, and sin must be dethroned. I was watching that television series, The Chosen, the other night. And you know, Mary Magdalene, the first part of that, is wondrously saved and delivered from seven demons. But she reaches a point where she sees a part of her old life in another man who is possessed by demons, and she ends up going back somewhat to her old life. And Jesus is waiting for her to come back. That's a picture of reality. The old life is always calling us back. And changes have to be made in our routine, our schedule, our relationships, our habits, and our thinking. That's why Hebrews 12 1 through 2 says we have a great cloud of witnesses looking to us. We must look to Jesus. That's why Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make provision for the flesh. That's why he says bad company corrupts good morals. When you turn away from some things, you turn to Christ. And when you turn to Christ, you begin to yield yourself to him. But you have to change. Things have to change. Our habits have to change. And what is the ground of this exhortation? It is the basic reason for yielding ourselves to God and not to sin. We are alive from the dead. We have died to sin and we have risen to God. So we cannot yield ourselves to sin. We must yield ourselves to God. Have you done that? Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you look to Him always by faith in order to find the definition of who you really are? And what you're here to do. And how much he loves you. It is true. That where sin increases, grace increases all the more. But not to allow us to wallow in our sin. But to deliver us from it. Won't you respond to the grace and kindness and love of God in Jesus Christ. To put to death what is of the old person. The old man. And put on the new man. And follow after him. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul, and I pray, Lord, earnestly this morning that you would awaken in every one of our hearts, Lord, a desire to know you better, a desire to be unified with you, a desire to truly reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Lord, we live in a physical world that is always screaming what reality and truth is, and yet through the eyes of faith, the eyes of the soul, we know that the greater truth is a spiritual truth, and that, Lord, you are active in our lives, and you're working according to your good pleasure. Help us, Lord, to put the old man to death and to rise in resurrection power to live the rest of our lives for your glory and honor. Lord, save those who are lost and disciple those who are saved and get all the glory for what you will do in our lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.